How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh, we should be doing that thing where we're just like talking and with a rolling, oh, yeah. the, the rolling intro. We could talk we're about not very talk. good at this. We've been we talking for like a whole hour <laughs> and <laughs> we didn't record. So now it's just going to sound awkward. Uh, we've yeah. been talking about the terminal this whole time, or or Joe versus the volcano, which is what we've or I mean, Shannon Doherty's we... terminal illness. Yeah, that's or... there's so so many topics we could have been talking about. All things my... we actually did discuss. Yeah, yeah, right but just there is no recording. there's no permanent record of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shot. This is the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the Three, two guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. And I am your only other host for this week, Justin Bishop. <laughs> oh, somebody. we are missing somebody. We've already, we already explained that in our last episode. If you want to know where Todd is, well... So would the authorities. He's in hell. <laughs> well, here we are, guys. We're doing another roulette episode, as we announced last week. Uh, this time without Todd. Uh, so you're not going to hear some nonsensical spoiler warning that doesn't make any sense. Although, we will be talking about spoilers. You're not going to hear much about Star Trek, I don't think, unless it just comes up organically. <laughs> uh, we are joking. We, we're going to miss Todd for the next few weeks but as we explained in our last episode he's gonna he's been doing he's doing some traveling and such around the holidays so he will not be available so he's gonna come back in uh in the new year and we're gonna start a whole new series then but until then it's just the gary and justin show for the next few weeks you know in the in the time between now and when we start that new long form series we uh we decided we're just gonna have a little bit of fun and we're gonna choose a handful of random movies from the roulette wheel and uh, first up, if you listen to our Howzoo episode, then you already know. Or if you, I guess, clicked on the link to this episode, you already know. <laughs> but we are talking about a movie from 1989, the template for all Mean Girls films to follow. Today, we are talking about Heathers. Heather Chandler. Heather McNamara. Heather Duke. Veronica Sawyer. The most powerful clique at Westerberg. Most people would die to get into it. Heather number one just looked right at me. Veronica would kill to get out of it. You were nothing before you met me. You were a Girl Scout cookie. JD has come to answer her prayers. I'm a no-rest build-up man myself. Well, kill her. He's got a way with women, a way with words. Is this as good for you as it is for me? A very special way with a gun. Veronica can't live with him. I love my dead gay son. And she can't live without him. Does this turn out weak or what? I had at least 70 more people at my funeral. 
Their meeting was destiny. Their love has a body count. Heathers, a killer comedy. Zoe Saldana is in The Terminal with Tom Hanks, which I was just telling Justin I was watching. And she is a Trekkie in that movie. Yeah, she plays like the person who could stamp his passport. And then the other guy's in love with her and Tom Hanks is like trying to set him up. Anyway, she's a Trekkie in there. That's one of the facts he finds out about her. Then I got curious because she plays Uhura in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. This was before all that. So kind of neat that all that happened. Also, interestingly enough, I was going to say earlier, I can't imagine how Star Trek is going to come up in this episode of the show. And here we are. And yet you managed it, but you're talking about a movie that we are not discussing today. You're talking about the uh, Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, which is not the subject of today's episode. So I wouldn't say that was it coming up organically. <laughs> no, I'm just still caught up in our previous conversation. I'm living in the past. Do you know that when Heathers was released overseas, it was released as Lethal Attraction? I put that in my notes here, as yeah. a matter of fact. How about yeah, that? I capitalized on Fatal Attraction and Lethal Weapon. What a weird combo. They should have called it Fatal Weapon. What but, was the parody movie called? Loaded Weapon. Loaded Weapon. <laughs> With yeah. Emilio Estevez. Right? Yeah. Whose like, sister, uh, and, Emilio Estevez's sister, is in Heathers. She plays Betty Finn. I did not realize. Yeah, she I doesn't do a lot of other together. acting. Like, uh, outside of this movie, she doesn't have a ton of other credits. But yeah, she is an Estevez, or a Sheen, if you will. All right. Well, this is this is all coming back around. I was just going to mention Samuel Jackson, I think, is also with the Danny Glover role in Loaded Weapon. Yeah, who is not in Heathers at all. So let's... Uh... <laughs> Should have been. Should have been. Very so few the... black people in Heathers. Yeah, well... Yeah, this there's a few. There's the guy in the uh, on the yearbook committee. That's true. They okay, did I said a few. I think there's the one guy. <laughs> there's the one guy. This is this is. I I don't know. I've noticed this in like movies, especially when we watch the movies from the '80s. This is again, we're off topic here. Not where we intended to go, but I have I have for some reason I think this was the idea. You know, when all the the, the pushes come from like people to like more diverse casting and that sort right. of thing it's made me see it sometimes when i'm watching like movies from the 80s or something yeah. i'm like wow no wow. black people lived in the united states during this i guess. not in sherwood ohio well and that may be true just in yeah. general i don't know yeah, I don't know well it doesn't, i don't think sherwood ohio exists i think it's a made-up town right it is sherwood ohio it is. okay it is <laughs> yeah all right I so think i have something about that later but well let's get into on. it let's, then Let's talk about Heathers, actually. That'd be great. <laughs> well, well, I mean, we were a little bit, but we were getting a little off topic. We don't have hot, we don't have Todd here to reel us in. Todd was always <laughs> the voice of reason. Sure, it was. <laughs> uh, so the story behind Heathers begins with a Stanley Kubrick-obsessed movie nerd named Daniel Waters. I use that term affectionately, by the way, movie nerd, because I would consider myself one, obviously. So Waters was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but he was raised in South Bend, Indiana, and he began telling stories at an early age. While in high school, he was a writer for his school paper where he penned a column called Troubled Waters, uh, which is clever, uh, in which he wrote fictional stories about his real-life classmates. And then in the early 1980s, he wrote, directed, and starred in a local sketch comedy show called Beyond Our Control, which aired on the local NBC affiliate. So here's a weird little sidebar because I looked into this show. I actually I tried to find some of like his segments, and I, I did find some... There are some segments from this show on YouTube, but I don't know which ones he worked on because this show uh, aired for a long time. Uh, it aired from the late 60s until the mid-1980s. And this show, Beyond Our Control, was a sort of odd-sounding mix 
of sketch comedy and experimental filmmaking, all produced by and starring local high school kids. And some other notable members of the Beyond Our Control company included uh, Tracy Page Johnson, who is the creator of Blue's Clues, uh, Chris Webb, who is the screenwriter of Toy Story 2, uh, David Simpkins, the writer of Adventures in Babysitting, and Dean Norris, an actor best known as Hank from Breaking Bad. All this is in, in South Bend, Indiana, of all places, where who, which I have visited South Bend, Indiana, and it's a, it's a very unexciting town. Uh, no offense to, to South Bend, Indiana, uh, but you guys know that. Y'all are aware. <laughs> I, for some reason, went down this rabbit hole, too, and it's pretty insane. I thought, you know, I feel like we've run across this a couple of times. My, my easiest remembered is, like, in the Sam Raimi episode, we were talking about this second movie that I just forgot the name of. Uh, Crime Wave. Crime Wave, yeah. This is a story that would probably be right for like a movie about it because the the guy who started his name was like dave williams worked at the local tv station at 26 he conceived the whole thing and he just seems like he was a good dude giving these kids a thing to do and yeah. sadly outlasted him because he was 26 when it started and he died during brain surgery in his early 30s oh wow. uh, from a tumor that he had uh which is gonna be a theme here this ongoing so weird, weird <laughs> ongoing theme for this episode <laughs> <laughs> it is. He made a really cool thing. I think the tagline for the show was a very nice TV show, which I love that as a tagline. <laughs> but it lasted, like Justin was saying, it went on forever. It was 19 like 20 seasons. Years, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or yeah, And uh, all these names were part of the uh, ensemble at some point. I think yeah. Waters was there for like one or two years. The yeah, show had something like, yeah, like 350 members of the ensemble during its Well, yeah, run. because you're only going, it's only available to like kids who are high school age. So, you know, you can't work on the show for 10 or 15 years at a time. So they're constantly, I guess, having to rotate through these kids, which is, it's cool that they're giving these kids like an opportunity to, to be creative. And a lot of these people who, you know, we just mentioned probably went on and, and felt like they had the ability to go on further in their careers in, you know, the film industry because they were given this early boost of confidence. It's really cool, actually. I guess out of 350 people, somebody's got to hit. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. So that gives exactly. me hope. We're only 100 episodes in now, so we've got time for one of these to make a difference. Right. After In 19 years, we'll see what happens. <laughs> right. So another Beyond Our Control alum and one that worked directly with Waters during his time on the show was a guy named Larry Karaszewski. So Karaszewski would go on to be a very successful screenwriter, starting his career by writing Problem Child 1 and 2, which I have fond memories of those movies, but it's not exactly a prestige cinema there. And he I got, just he got a, bad to the bone playing. For yeah, some reason yeah. in my brain, I relate it to Beethoven. And I don't yeah, know I, And I remember Kramer being in them and being like a bad guy, right? Wasn't he a bad guy in those? Yeah, he was like the kidnapper. Right. But uh, yeah, after Problem Child 2, he's like, I want to move on to some different stuff in my career. And he started writing... Uh, a movie called Ed Wood. In 1994, Tim Burton. This is the first of several Tim Burton connections that we're going to find on this episode. But he also kind of became him and his writing partner. They kind of became known for writing biopics about people who would not normally get biopics. That, that kind of became their bread and butter. So he'd go on to write movies like The People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, Big Eyes, which is another Tim Burton movie, and Dolomite Is My Name. And also Agent Cody Banks, which is not, I don't think, a real biopic, but he did also write that one. <laughs> but I, uh, I only mentioned this because Karaszewski does play a significant role in Heather's development further down the line. So we'll get back to Larry a little bit later on. But after high school, uh, 
Waters, he went to college. He went to Montreal to go to college. And while there, he wrote a short screenplay where a high schooler is accused of being a witch and is subsequently burned at the stake under the supervision of three girls who share the same name, which is a concept, of course, that he would expand upon later. She's burned at the stake at halftime of a football game, which sounds like Perfect. an incredible thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was reading this interview. Uh, yeah, I think the second Cosmo. half of that football game would have been very awkward, I feel like. <laughs> Right. Like, how do you top that? Um, <laughs> no, I was reading an interview. I think it was in Cosmo with uh, date uh, with Waters, and it was around. I think the premiere of Heather's the musical. But they ask if you know if it was always called Heather's, and he starts going into that story a little bit more. But uh, about the three girls, he says, "Yes, it was never a different name. Uh, there were three popular girls, and I just named them all Heather. I always kept that in mind because for some reason, Heather was just. It's hard to remember exactly at that time, the '80s, that. Heather was the name for that girl. I don't know what it would be today. Ashley's or Karen's probably or something. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, it was always Heather. In fact, the title came almost before the movie came. Uh, he said he actually didn't even know any Heathers. He said he knew some Stephanie's that he related this to, but that he didn't think that it had the same zing to it. So after college, he moved to L.A., hoping to break into the movie business. And he did it successfully. He broke into the movie business by working at a video store. This reminds me of like the Regal Cinemas ad that plays before the movies that yeah, they say right. like, let us help you get your start in the movie business. Yeah. Cleaning up puke in the bathrooms and <laughs> mopping, <laughs> up, mopping up popcorn butter. <laughs> Congratulations. Exactly. You were in the movie business. But now, he actually became the manager of this video store. So, you know, he wasn't just a grunt, right? He was running the joint. But it was while he was working at the video store, he began brainstorming. Uh, about his, what his first feature-length screenplay might be about. And he had a couple of ideas. One of those ideas was a lesbian version of Terrence Malick's Badlands, which is uh, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. They go on kind of this Bonnie and Clyde killing spree sort of thing. Another one of his ideas was a story about an alienated high school girl who starts to date the Antichrist. So with that little bit of story in mind, in the spring of 1986, Waters began writing what would become Heather's. So someone as steeped in movie nerd knowledge as Waters uh, was is, is bound to pick up some cinematic influences along the way. And one often cited film that bears some striking, some striking similarities to Heather's is the 1976 exploitation film Massacre at Central High, written and directed by Renee Dalder. And the plot of that film, and this is directly from IMDb, is as follows. A high school transfer student pushed to the edge by a trio of brutal bullies resorts to murder to reclaim the school from oppression and later turns against the students wanting to fill the vacuum of their oppressors. So that sounds a little bit familiar. Slightly. <laughs> yeah, but uh, according to Waters, he had never seen Massacre at Central High, although he does admit to having read about it in one of Danny Peary's cult movies books. So he's like, yeah, I didn't I'd never seen it. So I didn't know the exact full plot other than what Danny Peary may have written about it. So, but it is very possible that when I was writing Heather's, that this plot synopsis was clanging around in my subconscious somewhere. So in writing the script, Waters made, he made very special care not to date the film too badly. So instead of using slang that was popular at the time, he, he kind of created his own made-up lingo. Uh, he actually, in several interviews that I read, he likens this to Shakespeare, who wrote dialogue that was nothing like how people actually spoke at the time. It was just a highly stylized dialogue. People, you know, you read Shakespeare now, and a lot of people assume that's, a, that's how people spoke back then. It's like, no, like Shakespeare was 
a very stylized writer. People did not talk that way, and in, 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 even in Shakespearean times. Uh, and Waters later said, if you try to coddle to the culture that's happening right now, what you think is happening, what you think is hip, it's kind of the light of a star from a planet that blew up 500 years ago. Imagine the balls of walking into Hollywood. I'm, I'm right. I'm right like Shakespeare over here. I want Stanley <laughs> Kubrick to come in. Right. You know, we'll talk about, but uh, just kidding. Though. He seems, he seems like a good guy. Very dry wit. in like yeah. all the interviews and stuff. Super I've seen. smart. There are little things here and there that he says he got like some one-liners that he heard from kids. Like when he had worked as a camp counselor in the past. Uh, What's your damage? I think is what he got from that one. From like yeah one yeah his, yeah one of the other counselors would say yeah he said uh it's so funny he says i was a camp counselor in toronto and there was a little girl who would always say what's your damage and i completely stole that from her it's I great feel like you know she <laughs> he's like she's probably walking around at like 35 being like wait that was my line how did they steal that from me <laughs> There's a lot of great little one-liners in this. The note passing scene, I know he said with Martha Duptruck that that was something his sister had done. He had seen her do that in the school. Where where they forge her uh, or the the dude's handwriting yeah. and pass it to her. Yeah, put it beginning. on her tray. Yeah. yeah, he said his sister did that. Wow, that's and, mean. Yeah, real jerk. <laughs> he said he, he like always knew there were like certain lines that would get you know, some attention, like, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Of course, yeah. Uh, he said that came from uh, one of his college friends used to say, fuck me gently with a crowbar. Yeah. And then he realized that a crowbar sounded too masculine, he said, and a chainsaw, for some reason, felt more feminine, I guess. I don't know. A him. chainsaw seems pretty phallic to me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh... <laughs> it's even like on the cover of, like, Hostel, I always remember, like, Eli Roth has the guy with the chainsaw coming yeah. out of his, you know, groin I area. Mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, like a part two where where he's running around with that giant super long chainsaw, you know, like it's exactly. very clearly a, a dick, you know. Well, and he also has a line where um, Shannon Doherty's character says, quit pulling my dick, which is another <laughs> great line. In the movie. He said he, that, that line, he says, fuck me gently. I, got, I don't know if the guy was from England or something. He said, fuck me gently at the time was like a common expression in England. So it's the evolution of nasty language. He said that. He said, my friend extrapolated fuck me gently into fuck me gently with a crowbar. And then I had him killed so I could take credit for fuck me gently with a chainsaw. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> That's great. But uh, Yeah. Uh, and he says he's been impressed, though, because it'll be like it stuff and like the line, lick it up, baby, lick it up after mm -hmm. Veronica throws up you know, or whatever. He says, like, people will cheer at that. And he's like, what? That wasn't yeah. even what I ever thought of. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of that one is Winona Ryder's delivery of it, too, which is pretty great. So you mentioned Stanley Kubrick earlier, uh, and I, I mentioned it in a little bit in my opening uh, intro to this. So Waters was, like any good movie nerd, a little bit obsessed with Stanley Kubrick. And when he wrote Heathers, he actually wrote it as a Stanley Kubrick vehicle. Like he wrote it with Stanley Kubrick in mind as the a, a director. And he actively tried to court Kubrick for the project, making several attempts to get his script to the director. And his reasoning was that, you know, Kubrick directs films in a wide variety of genres. Uh, one could argue that every film that Kubrick made from Spartacus on to the end of his career was a different genre than what he had directed before. So who better to take a stab at a high school movie that was being written as sort of the 
antithesis to those John Hughes movies that were popular at the time. Why not get Stanley Kubrick to do it? So in that spirit, his first draft of the Heather script was 196 pages long, which would have had Heather's clocking in at over three hours. Uh, an, uh, an epic worthy of Stanley Kubrick, I would say. So in this unwieldy first draft, it's more than an hour into the movie before anybody actually dies. If that tells you anything. Uh, there are some changes. There's a strip croquet match, uh, which is alluded to in the film, but in the original script, you actually saw the strip croquet. There's a huge subplot that completely got taken out where the preppy uh, Peter Dawson, who's the kid who's like raising money for Africa or whatever in the in the movie, he creates an anti-suicide organization called the Genesis Club. And of course, there's the infamous prom in heaven scene at the end, uh, which we will talk about more here in a minute. Waters was, uh, unfortunately but not unsurprisingly, unable to get Stanley Kubrick on board to direct the film, despite his many attempts. Although the script and the final film do include some homages to Kubrick, uh, including the early cafeteria scene, which was written as a tribute to the barracks scene that takes place at the beginning of Full Metal Jacket. But the screenplay did make its way to Waters' old South Bend, Indiana buddy, Larry Kaz uh, Larry Karaszewski. That's a Those Polish names are or tongue twisters. <laughs> I was going to give you props for at the beginning, just like seamlessly going into it. I know. And then I didn't this time. Larry Karaszewski, who I told you I, we, we'd get back to him, but Karaszewski, who had gone to college at the University of Southern California's film school, he showed it to one of his USC classmates, a young director and fellow Kubrick file named Michael Lehman. Lehman's a little bit older. He's about five years older than Waters. Uh, so he's in his like early 30s at this point, I think. He'd gotten his start in the film industry by answering phones at Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope Studio, which led him to working on some entry-level jobs on Coppola's films, uh, One from the Heart and The Outsiders. But while in film school at USC, he made a short film called The Beaver Gets a Boner, which was about a hardworking kid who needs a college scholarship so that he can pay off his drug supplier. So, and uh, I haven't seen this yet, although it is on the Arrow Blu-ray release that came out in, in uh, the UK, but I have seen some clips from it. And speaking of phallic, like they, when it's called, it's called the beaver gets a boner, uh, the beaver being a school mascot, like at, at the high school in it, the statue of the beaver at the high school gets vandalized with a chainsaw right in his crotch. So it looks like the beaver has a boner. That's where the name comes from. In there case you were wondering. In yeah, but more wrong. back to the chainsaw being phallic. Exactly, right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But on All the strength right. of this short film, or uh, according to Lehman, maybe on the strength of its title, because the title's pretty damn funny, uh, he was able to, to secure a development deal with New World Pictures. I don't know if we've talked about New World Pictures just yet on the show. Have we talked about a movie that they've produced yet? I don't think we have. We uh, have, actually. Have we? What and, was it? And it was The Brood. Uh, oh, The Brood David was in Carter. New World. Or was yeah. it just, it was probably just distributed by then. Cause it yeah, was maybe produced, it was distributed. Because it was produced then. in Canada. But yeah, that would make sense. Because they did, they did distribute a lot of foreign films like Fellini and Kurosawa stuff. A lot of that stuff came through New World. They were, uh, they were responsible for importing a lot of that stuff to the art house scenes in America. But New World Pictures, uh, so it's a film production company. It was founded by Roger Corman in 1970. And throughout the 70s, it, in addition to doing the importing the kind of art films and foreign films, like I mentioned, it also produced some of the best movies, in my opinion, that Corman's name was ever attached to, uh, including Death Race 2000, Cage Teat, uh, Joe Dante's Piranha, uh, Rock and Roll High School. Like, I mean, some of the best movies that came out during that period, you know, of exploitation cinema. But by 1983, Corman had sold the company. And they had kind of pivoted away from this straight up 
like low budget exploitation fare to more uh, more diverse offerings. I guess you would say they produce everything from you know stuff like the Sarah Jessica Parker comedy uh, "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" uh, to Larry Cohen's "The Stuff" and Clive Barker's "Hellraiser." Which I just rewatched this week. I know you're a big Hellraiser fan, man. That new 4K restoration is fantastic. Really good. I got to watch that one. I ended up buying it because you convinced me to buy it. I had literally just watched the movie like right before Halloween. I watched Hellraiser again, yeah. and now I've got to watch it again. That box set will come in handy when we do a Clive Barker series down the line. Oh, sure. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so all just in. consider I've been, it. I've, consider that an investment in the future. I love Clive Barker stuff. Yeah, now. I'm reading. I'm reading the books of blood. Now, this is not important. I'm reading the books of blood right now, <laughs> and uh, I just finished the Thief of Always, and so I've become obsessed. Oh, Thief of Always is great. I'm surprised that's never been made into a movie. Honestly, it, they've, it's like one of those that's been like steadily they're trying. trying. Yeah, <laughs> and, I don't know. It seems like it'd be a great kids movie, basically. Yeah, like, I feel like it should fantasy. be done. Um, done like by Leica, like a stop motion, like Coraline. You know, that would be a really good. That's the way, way you do it. it. Yes. Anyway, oh, anyway, back to back to Heather's. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lehman read and loved Water script for Heather's, and it, he passed it along to Denise Denovi, who she had been New World's executive vice president of production, and she was now kind of looking to make a big splash with her debut as a bona fide producer side note about Denovi, And I, I've figured out a way to put all these pieces together. I, there's just weird random things that I noticed, but, but with her before she got this gig with new world, she was a principal uh, at film plan international. This was the company that was formed by some guys that it, it was the four guys that started under a different name. And then one of them left. It was the three, three guys, but they were making movies, taking advantage of a Canadian film tax shelter law and uh oh. we well, which about we talked those. about a lot during our Cronenberg series. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say, and with that, with them, she helped in overseeing something like nine productions, and guess who she made uh, some movies with? That was David Cronenberg. So she's wow. never directly named, like even at IMDb when you look it up, but she was with Film Plan International overseeing. I saw Videodrome and scanners so she was oh, a wow. part of those. so she wasn't an official producer i guess she just she worked for the production company uh it's it's so weird how those things work like how you get producing credits or why you don't get producing credits even if you're working on the film i know i don't fully understand it yeah it was really weird all they referred to her as is a principal is what i saw yeah so she but, worked she worked for the company somehow and was somehow involved in that she did that then she came over to new world which i which i which is where i saw that new world had worked on the brood prior gotcha. to cronenberg working with these guys i wonder if and, that's how uh, she got the job with new world like how she yeah that's what i mean i haven't with them. pieced it together but i i do wonder if there's like some connection there somehow yeah. uh, i mean it could be a coincidence she's a badass but, producer lady uh, she, she is. I mean, she's got a hell of a list of credits, even after this, like a yeah, a hell of a, a hell of a resume. Uh, I was going to okay. say she'd already done stuff up till here. But then, yeah, she says she saw this script and thought it was a masterpiece. So that's yeah, it's got to be saying something. Yeah, she really loved it. So she very enthusiastically brought it to the executives at New World who responded with sort of a, uh, what the hell is this? Are you crazy? You know, the script was really nothing like those John Hughes movies, you know, that, that were popular at the time. Uh, it was this weird script filled with oddball lingo. It had a dark streak a mile wide. But the biggest point of contention was the original ending that Waters had written. You see, in, in that original ending, J.D. succeeds in blowing up the high school and everyone dies. That's how... That's how the movie ends, uh, which is dark enough. But then the script cuts to a final scene, which takes place in heaven, 
where all of the characters from the film who are now dead are dancing together under a banner that says, what a waste. Oh, the humanity, which is the line that's said by one of those dumbass cops in, in the finished film. I think they had like a, a few different endings. And one of them, basically similar to that, it was like Veronica does kill JD in the boiler room and then goes out. She blows herself up and it's, and it, it's hinted at that the school blows up with her or something. And then they go to that prom and heaven. But yeah, New World was like, no, no world. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, they didn't like that. Like, Steve, There's a guy named Steve White who was an executive at New World. Who He's the one who actually signed Michael Lehman on with his development deal because he, he was a fan of The Beaver Gets a Boner. And Steve White, you know, he was a big fan of the script overall, but he just said, there's no way. We can't make a satirical movie about teenage suicide in which people actually kill themselves. Uh, he basically, it wasn't like the subject matter of the film that bothered him. Like White was no, he was not a prude. He was a former member of the Groundlings. You know, he produced one of the first films that dealt with the, the age crisis. Like he did, he was not scared of dark subject matter, but glorifying suicide and treating it as a victory was just like a step too far for him. Their, their worry was that an anti-suicide movie i think the exact way they put it the anti-suicide movie in which the protagonist ends up killing herself would result in copycat suicides right yeah and he said if, there, if even if that happens even one time then blood's on our hands is what he says so waters changed the script i mean he, he kind of had to if he wanted this movie to get made and the only other studio that had shown any interest whatsoever in the script was new line new nine cinema who we've talked about a lot on this show uh, but they wanted to spend even less money and were demanding even more changes. So, yeah, the studio who released Pink Flamingos and who produced the Freddy Krueger movies read the script of Heathers and thought it was too controversial. Suicide's a tough one, though, just because of how influential I guess it can be. And, uh, you know, like Freddy can be chalked up to dumb slasher stuff and uh, nobody's going to get the wrong message from uh, eating dog shit. Uh, hopefully <laughs> yeah, hopefully I mean, nobody but, that could get hurt at least by it yeah but i i guess aside I mean, other than that final scene that in the original script none of the characters actually commit suicide in heathers you know uh, although martha does attempt to but that's part of where the satire comes from is how people respond to it which i'm sure we'll talk about in a minute so there was another ending though it was never scripted but it was kind of pitched by waters after shooting had already begun and in this ending it starts out the same way that the current ending does, uh, except in this ending, after JD dies, Veronica approaches Martha Dump Truck, just like we see in the movie, asks her, hey, if she wants to hang out, rent some new releases. Uh, and then instead of this little sweet little moment that we get from Martha, where she just says, I'd like that, you know, in the film, in this version, what Waters proposed was that Martha pulls out a gun and says, fuck you, Heather, and then shoots Veronica in the face. <laughs> and Veronica <laughs> is coughing up blood and dying while repeating the line, my name's not Heather, you know. Meanwhile, Martha, channeling Dr. Strangelove in one final salute to Stanley Kubrick, stands up from her wheelchair and announces, I can walk. And then the movie ends that way. So you can see, like, yeah, it's a different ending, but I would say that's no less dark than the one that they had asked him to change. He still says, though, like, I think there was Entertainment Weekly had, like, an oral history of uh, this Yeah, movie I, I and... got a lot of information from that one. That was one of my main sources on this. And he says, and he, he says a knife in that one, I think, because he says, the ending I should have fought harder for is where Martha Duptruck pulls out a knife, stabs Veronica, and says, fuck you, Heather. And Veronica's <laughs> on the ground laughing with a knife in her stomach saying, my name's not Heather, my name's not Heather. Yeah, and one of them I read, he, he said he sh she gets shot in the face, and I think in other stories he says she gets shot in the stomach. So I guess 
the through line is that she gets killed by Martha in some way. At the end. Veronica dies at the hands of Martha. Right. Pulling exactly. a weapon from her wheelchair. So I, it's probably good that they didn't put that ending. Because the end of the movie as it is, I think, is pretty perfect with her and Martha kind of walking off together. I think that's a great little ending. Definitely a more hopeful ending. Much more hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. So once these changes were made to the screenplay and New World greenlit the film, it was time to find our cast. Uh, however, before official casting began, uh, Denovi, Waters, and Lehman organized an informal read-through of the script with some acting students. With uh, Dana Delaney, who was best known for her role on the TV series China Beach, uh, she was in the role of Veronica during this reading. And then an unknown teenage uh, acting student played JD, and this kid who read JD's part, you know, he showed some talent, showed a lot of promise, but they felt he was kind of too innocent looking, I think is how they described it uh, for, for the part. So they passed on casting him. And that kid ended up being um, a guy named Brad Pitt. That's wild because I don't, I don't know. I'm interested like how that would have worked out. I, I, Waters does say after the reading was over that he still remembers a pimply faced blonde Brad Pitt coming up to him and saying, hey, man. I know I'm not anybody, but for what it's worth, that was brilliant. Yeah. Hey, that's nice. I mean, I guess for, at the time it did. He's like, yeah, thanks, kid. But then looking back <laughs> on it, he's like, that's Brad fucking Pitt. That, that said that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I don't know that this movie would have been any different with Brad Pitt in the role. Honestly, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think Christian Slater is, is pretty great in the role and does bring an edginess to it that Brad Pitt didn't really have at the time. You know, uh, obviously yeah. Brad Pitt could probably play it later on but it needed to be a teenager <laughs> at this point the role of jd of course would go to a christian slater who was 19 years old at the time when he was cast in this he was best known for co-starring in, in a now mostly forgotten 1986 sean connery movie called the name of the rose that sounds vaguely familiar like i remember seeing that at the video store i worked at but it feels like one of those like generic names that you vaguely remember <laughs> right right you know i don't know why i have this sidebar but here we are but the casting directors for this movie i noticed for some dumb reason were julie selzer and sally dennison and the fun dumb fact i noticed for this just so we could make random connections are uh they had come to this movie straight off of doing the casting for robocop so yeah there's they did robocop too as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> right off the so we can get to Cronenberg and Verhoeven now so we, we, we piece all these together so if you're working uh, on the cinema shock family tree there's a lot of branches on this one yeah for Waters though he said with JD he and actually I, I assume why he got the name although he's never directly said it is he pictured the reincarnation of James Dean his name's Jason Dean. Like, yeah, I mean, there's no yeah. way that he did that on accident. He's play, he's writing a rebellious character who is, I mean, he's clearly named after James Dean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he is he, essentially, I mean, he is essentially a rebel without a cause, you know, like he, by the end of the movie. You know, it, it makes sense. Look also, J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. I was going to mention yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. J.D. Salinger. It said he got Jack Nicholson. So J.N. Uh, Kitty, sort of. <laughs> he does say, he says about Christian Slater, he's like, he definitely brought his Jack Nicholson. And I didn't think there was a, such a thing as a young Jack Nicholson. So that was great. <laughs> but uh, he, Christian Slater, for his time there, he said he remembers he read for the role and was like excited about it, but then really thought he had blown it and said he had a big tantrum after throwing the yeah. script in the trash. And <laughs> he uh, thought he fucked up the audition. And uh, I think by the end of it, the only note they got about him was they didn't think he was the studio. Didn't think he was demonic enough near the end or something. Huh. I saw, but huh. like, yeah, I guess he was still, he still seemed too nice to blow himself up. <laughs> does he though? <laughs> I don't think he does. I think he's a, <laughs> it's a pretty despicable character by the end. <laughs> right. 
So for the central character of Veronica, producers offered the role to uh, Jennifer Connelly, you know, just off of Labyrinth. Justine Bateman uh, was offered the role. She, you know, she was popular because of family, was it Family Ties she was in, right, at the time? I think that's right, yeah. Both of whom passed. Uh, and the third name on their list was Winona Ryder, who was then mostly an unknown. People who did know who they are, who she was or people who had seen her had pretty much only seen her in one movie. It's this, she plays this kind of tomboyish supporting character in a Corey Haim movie called Lucas. Not at all like a glamorous role at all. She's got really short hair. She's really uh, like, she she looks like a tomboy. Uh, so at the time of her casting, she had just worked on Beetlejuice, although it had not been released yet. So there's, there's another random Tim Burton reference for you. And writer's agent begged, like literally got on her knees and begged her not to take this role saying it would destroy her career but writer just really connected with the script and really loved this script and took the job anyway and then she ended up firing her agent anyhow he uh david waters didn't even want what older writer by the way he he Instead of that uh, oral history, Wadona likes to tease me. I wanted Jennifer Connelly instead of her. And I didn't think Wadona was pretty enough because she was at that time. She had only done Lucas and Square Dance and not even Beetlejuice yet. So I thought she was this scrawny little unattractive girl. So I said, this can't. But of yeah. course, now everybody makes fun of me. So Wadona, like it's I saw somewhere the stuff that led her to liking it. One of the things that appealed to her was there was one story about some kid from a high school that she was at that had killed themselves. That inspired her. I couldn't. I, I don't know how true that is or if that was just kind of out there. But for what it's worth, she gets the unattractive thing. Uh, she she says in one interview, at least, you have to understand that this time I didn't even look that different from my character in Beetlejuice. I was very pale. I had blue, black dyed hair. Before this audition, I went to Macy's at the Beverly Center and had them do a makeover on me. <laughs> but she got it from Michael McDowell, one of the writers on Beetlejuice. And he read the script. I don't know how he got the script, but he showed it to her saying, you got to go for this. This is this is great. I guess Lehman was like, thought she was perfect. And she told him that she loved the script for Heathers. And it was like the greatest piece of literature since Catcher in the Rye or wow. something like that, <laughs> which probably just like rubbed that ego. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he said he had pictured Veronica more dark, but uh, Ryder's performance was a little more sympathetic than he had pictured. That she was only going to be like a little more moral than JD was in his original idea for the script. And there's a constant theme of this. It seems like clearly Waters is way more cynical than anybody's allowing him to be. Right. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, he said he pictured her as a female Travis Pickle from Taxi wow. Driver. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he he was thinking of Veronica as. Wow. What Oda sold him though was the the point. And uh, Levin says like the first time we shot with her, I I turned to the cameraman and said, "This girl is a movie star." Yeah. And she was only fifteen at the time. She turned sixteen during this movie. It, yeah. I know. I know there were like certain things they had to work around, which was like like when the football players get killed. That's during the daytime, and it was originally intended to be at night, but because of her school stuff like they had to redo everything she had you know she would still have to be uh going to school during the day and i think because she was under 18 you can only work a certain number of hours you know legally throughout the day did Stenovi even had a quote from her saying that just Winona was so smart she was 15 she turned 16 on the movie she was a prodigy though from a very young age she was like an old soul yeah uh, she she got the words. She got the imagery. She'd watched tons of old movies. She was sophisticated intellectually. And she had this beauty about her, this intelligence that she just seemed like the perfect anti-Heather when she started reading for this thing. Nice. 
So for the Heathers themselves, as far as casting goes, the, the role of Heather Chandler, who's like you know the lead Heather, uh, was originally offered to a real-life Heather, Heather Graham, who was not known at all at the time. Uh, and Graham, you know, she came in an audition. She gave a great reading. The filmmakers loved her. But she was only like 16 or 17 at the time, so she would have to get her parents' permission to appear in the film. And then after they read the script, they would not give the permission for her to be in the film. They didn't approve of it. So the casting director suggested uh, an actress named Kim Walker, 18 years old at the time, who happened to be dating Christian Slater as well. Yeah, that was like how she ended up getting it, I guess, because she was dating him. I didn't know much about Kim Walker. She apparently went to this high school that was pretty famous that I'm, you know, I'm no Hollywood celebrity, so I don't know. But uh, Fiorello LaGuardia High School of the Performing Arts. That's in like New York City, but oh, wow. she was a classmate and then like best friends with uh, Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Uh, they were, they were, they were bros. Yeah, I don't know. I saw like Carrie Lynn who plays Martha Dump Truck saying that she was just like the most beautiful girl like when you met her in person and just she said the first thing like i would i would just stare at her when we were acting and be like bitch do you even get a zit like, <laughs> they said so she you wanted to hate her but she was just like very very sweet yeah and i think i think they were a little hesitant about casting her because they were worried that um her and christian slater's relationship might impact you know, the filming but i guess it didn't and they ended up actually breaking up during the course of making the movie and christian slater and winona Ryder, i think hooked up for a little while yeah i was gonna say i i, I saw some stories about that that winona and christian slater after the breakup were doing some make it out so good yeah. good for you christian slater good for you christian uh, slater excellent excellent and we, work and we were talking about this in the beginning how this is coming up but kim walker unfortunately she died in 2001 from a brain tumor with the yeah. irony we were talking about right before we started recording that she has that line did you eat a brain tumor for breakfast which is just yeah. so morbidly ironic i guess yeah but, now uh, now yeah absolutely so uh for heather mcnamara the production cast lisanne Falk, who was a former child model who she was actually 23 years old at the time she was cast, which is a fact that she definitely hid during her audition. She said she was 18 or 19, she said, and after she got the part, they were having this celebration dinner. She mentioned something about how her and her boyfriend were living right down the street from the set, and everybody's like, what? Your mom's <laughs> letting you live with your boyfriend? <laughs> She's like, guys, I'm 23. Yeah. They're like, uh, she yeah, said but could she... see the panic hit everybody's face. They were like, wait, <laughs> that's not what you told us. Yeah, she um, definitely hid that when she, but she she does look young, so you know, there's that. But she uh, she definitely hid that from from them when she auditioned because at the time, you know, a lot of those '80s teen movies, like the John Hughes movies, there's a bunch of like 30 year olds playing high school students, and they were really trying to get people who were actually younger in these roles. I mean, they're not all high school age. Like I said, Christian Slater was like 19 at the time, but pretty close you know and he looks like a high schooler for her credit like i again another person i wasn't super familiar with but i was just interestingly looking at stuff about her she was like you know this you mentioned she's a, a model yeah uh, she'd been on like 17 and all this stuff she was working for like ford modeling agency and doing all this stuff had a book written about her in like 79 called yeah she, when she was like 14 model. years old uh when that when that book came out and she uh That's she crazy. was friends with brooke shields and she did a lot of modeling with Brooke Shields and including there's this one photo of her and Brooke Shields. They were, you know, like 
13 or 14 at the time. And they're both wearing like this kind of black leotard, like bathing suit looking thing with super crimped hair and red lipstick. And it caused a big stink at the time because of their age. But then, uh, but yeah, her and Brooke were really good friends. And then Brooke Shields went on and made Pretty Baby and became really famous and, you know, kind of stopped modeling after that. So they didn't, they kind of went their separate ways at that point. Falk and uh, Kim Walker, they, they go right after this. And they're both in Say Anything. Uh, yeah, which I thought was kind of interesting. But oh, they, they're both in it. I didn't realize that. I knew Kim Walker was. Yeah, they're both in it. Just another dumb fun fact. Oh, I love that movie. And then last but not least, in the role of Heather Duke, the filmmakers hired uh, an actress named Shannon Doherty, uh, who was, you know, she was a 16-year-old actress at the time. She was probably one of the most experienced actors in the younger cast members on this. Uh, she was a veteran of the TV series Little House on the Prairie and uh, a show called Our House. And when Doherty came in to audition, she actually came in to read for the Heather Chandler role, although she really wanted the role of Veronica, which she let everyone know at every chance that she got that she really wanted the role of Veronica. But by that time, Ryder had already been cast in that role. Levin says uh, when she came in, the casting directors pulled him aside and said, hey, this girl is really good, but she wants Veronica. And he's like, well, I, we already cast Winona. And they said, yeah, she knows that. She's really willing to read the Heather Duke part, but she just wants you to know that's not the part that she wants. <laughs> he's like, she was amazing in the reading. And he's like, I think that she actually did come in there thinking that I would watch her and she would be so good that we'd just be like, you're Veronica now instead. <laughs> the um, ego. Oh, yeah, wow. they said her mom was like there and was like constantly throwing our house in, the, in their faces like, well, you know, Shannon is the star of this other TV show. For what uh, it's worth, Shannon Doherty says, I don't remember that. I remember why Ona was already hired when I got the script. Originally, they wanted me to audition for Heather Chandler. When I read it, I loved Heather Duke. I love the fact that she started out weak. Uh, bulimic and the dog that you kick and then she became their term a quote mega bitch i loved that originally they wanted me to be blonde going blonde would have destroyed my hair so we all settled on redhead yeah <laughs> that's her story for it yeah although i mean the story of her wanting the veronica role is corroborated by several other people so i'm gonna say it's most likely pretty true <laughs> right <laughs> So other cast members included Carrie Lynn as Martha Dunstock, a.k.a. Martha Dump Truck, who was, I think, a stand-up comic at the time. She was doing some stand-up comedy, and she uh, they put out a casting call, call for they needed a, someone really big, a, an obese girl. And everyone else that they had coming into audition for that role was just like pretty girls who were slightly chubby. And they're like, no, nah, we need like someone who's like 400 pounds. And Carrie Lynn, I think in that... In that um, oral history she says something like i think i came out of the womb obese yeah <laughs> i was like where else are you gonna find a 400 year 400 pound you know 17 year old uh so she read for the role and she got it and she's really good in it i mean she she only has one line but she is by far the most sympathetic person in this entire movie you know 100 yeah. yeah she said she said that yeah like I, I was martha dump truck in real life like i had no friends i was big and uh, I was growing up in Beverly Hills. And yeah. She's like, but now I have therapy. <laughs> I think she's also lost like 200 pounds or something since then, she said. You also had Penelope Milford as Pauline Fleming. That's the, the the guidance counselor who is fucking hilarious in this movie. I think she had just won or just been nominated for an Academy Award right before this. Uh, Glenn Shaddix 
uh, who had just appeared in Beetlejuice alongside Ryder. Uh, he plays Otho, of course, in, in Beetlejuice. He plays Father Ripper here, the priest. And then Patrick La Laborito, who's God, a very difficult name. Patrick Laborito, who had appeared in Little House on the Prairie with Doherty and had been in a TV movie called Prince of Bel-Air with Lizanne Falk. Not the fresh Prince of Bel-Air, just regular Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, he was cast as Ram Sweeney. The Heathers began filming in July of 1988 on a budget of a uh, you know, fairly low budget of just $3 million and a fairly short shooting schedule of just 33 days. And despite being set in Sherwood, Ohio, most of the film was shot in and around Los Angeles, uh, which is why you do see some palm trees here and there in the background. But uh, they utilized several real-life high schools to portray the fictional Westerberg High School, which, yes, Gary, it is named after yeah. the replacements frontman, Paul Westerberg. Uh, they changed the E to a U because they felt like Westerberg with an E sounded too Jewish for suburban Ohio. <laughs> That's literally what the producer <laughs> said, <laughs> so, but it is, it was named after Paul Westerberg, which I gr I think is great. That's a great, that's a, that's a great fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, when I was watching it and saw that, I was like, this has gotta be, it's gotta yeah. be. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the first things I looked for. <laughs> but even the sets for Veronica's and uh, Heather McNamara's bedrooms that we see in the film, they were actually filmed at one of the high schools. They just built the sets inside of the gymnasium. Ryder says, you know, that the set was just like, for her time, it was just work, 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 go home, go to sleep. I had a tutor. Uh, there was no going out at all for me. She said, maybe there was for Christian a little bit. Levin says Christian was professional, but there were a couple of times where he slept in and they had to go find him. Uh, <laughs> he said he he told them he had a sleeping disorder. Yeah. Uh, he sure. said, I could never tell how true that was. And Slater, later on in that oral history, I think they asked him and he says, sleeping disorder. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, whatever I had then, I have recovered. I sleep very well. <laughs> so the cast mostly got along but as is the case anytime you throw a bunch of hormonal teenagers together clicks did begin to form uh slater kind of channeling his character i guess he was a little bit aloof uh he did purposely isolate himself from most of the cast choosing to stay off on his own just kind of hung out in his trailer smoking cigarettes but he especially steered clear of shannon doherty Later saying, uh, she seemed to not have any in, any interest in me, so I just kept my distance. Uh, but Doherty, that, that, this is a common theme you hear from all the cast members on this, is that Doherty seemed like she was a bit of a handful on this. Uh, she was difficult from the get-go, even from the audition. Honestly, she was kind of difficult. Uh, she often came across as sort of a prima donna, she, uh, you know, just reminding the other cast members that she was this big TV star. She, she wasn't really a big TV star. She was in our house and she was in the very last season of Little House on the Prairie. So it's not like she had been on a long running, a long running character on that show, you know. Uh, and this was all spurred on by her overbearing mother who accompanied her to the set every single day. Naturally, this kind of rubbed the rest of the cast the wrong way. Uh, I mean, she was like her character, kind of just a mean girl. Uh, the way Carrie Lynn describes it in that oral history was it's like when you get a paper cut. And someone just purposely squeezes a lemon on it. She was the lemon. She was just so bitchy. End quote. <laughs> like not mincing words at all. No. This is this is stuff I, I was saying before we started recording. I remember like growing up and like hearing stories about this from like Beverly Hills 90210. She was just Shannon Doherty had a reputation for for kind of being difficult sometimes. Yeah. And that's not where the difficulties ended, though. I mean, it wasn't just because she was being uh, a bitchy. Uh, because of her rather conservative upbringing, I mean, she was, I, I, we found this out right before 
recording began, but she was raised in a Southern Baptist household in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, she was, of course, in Little House on the Prairie, which is about as milk toast and conservative of a TV show as one could think of. Uh, but she had a lot of issues with the swearing in the film. And, and honestly, having to say these lines in front of her mother, who was standing just off screen, probably didn't help. But uh, one line that she absolutely refused to say was, fuck me gently with a chainsaw. Among some other colorful phrases that Waters had written for her. Uh, but that line, of, of course, as we know, would be given to Kim Walker's character and is one of the most memorable in the movie. So she gave up one of the, the best lines in the movie to another character. But she does get to say, quit pulling my dick. I guess she, I guess she didn't object to that one as much. But according to other cast members, Doherty just didn't have much of a sense of humor. Uh, she just took herself way too seriously, it sounds like. And probably because she lacked a sense of humor, she didn't seem to really get what kind of movie Heather's was. She had no idea that it was intended as a dark comedy and reportedly ran out of the cast screening sobbing when she realized that it wasn't the serious drama that she thought she had been making. Though how you could read a script that contains the line, fuck me gently with a chainsaw and not know that its tongue was planted firmly in cheek is beyond me. I don't know how you, how you do that. Maybe maybe she was so sheltered that she did, she just thought that was like a cool kid's perp. I don't, I don't know. Uh, for <laughs> You know, in my ongoing defense of Shannon Doherty, uh, her story is that there, there might, she, she said, quote, there might've been some tears in the eyes. Uh, I was worried people wouldn't take it the right way. I was worried about social responsibility and what we were saying. I've watched it again. And I was like, wait, this is really good at cutting edge. So she's backtracking now that she's older and understand and old enough to understand it. Basically is what it is. And it's so. hit cult status that she could uh, get some interviews and stuff. And yeah. Come do some stuff. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other dumb facts uh about filming that i couldn't really find to fit anywhere necessarily but um you know they're reading moby dick throughout the movie but this was yep. originally scripted to be catcher of the rye yeah uh, they couldn't secure the rights to that book but you know we already mentioned jd jd salinger sure yeah. all that it also makes way more sense if you think about catcher of the rye than yeah than moby dick with like angsty stuff and i don't know just the it fits teen angst better. bullshit yeah and jd of course but uh, there was a, apparently the scene where Veronica starts taking a shower with her clothes on uh, that originally ended with the other girls stepping into the shower fully clothed. And then it, there was going to be a cutaway of these high school boys looking through the wall uh, as a send up of Porky's. Yeah. And then they're going to be like, what? What? Why are they all clothed? <laughs> yeah, they're gonna be very disappointed. That's honestly uh, kind of funny. Yeah, they ended up cutting that because they didn't think it played very well, it did, well or something. It also doesn't add anything to the movie at all. It's just a funny gag. Yeah, there were issues with like certain corporations, like Seven Eleven and Perrier, that would not allow their shit to be in this movie. Uh, yeah, that was a thing. There was the whole mineral water scene. And the, well, yeah, and, the, and the Slappy Snack Shack. So they just changed it from Seven Eleven to slap the the snappy the snappy snack shack, and changed it from Slurpees to Slushies. But the Snappy yep. Snack Shack is a cool place. Like it's a yeah. that's a cool little brand that Waters made up. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love it. Oh, and, and we talked about Indiana. Sherwood, Indiana, it said uh, it was named this for several reasons. It was Ohio. Uh, his Sherwood, favorite... Ohio. Sorry, Sherwood, Ohio. He said uh, his favorite book was Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. Oh. Sherwood Forest was where Robin Hood is an outlaw doing good. And yeah. uh, also, he was born in Cleveland and grew up on Sherwood Street. Ah, okay. So that's uh, That's where that name came from. And then finally, another little dumb 
fun fact is that if you look, Veronica Sawyer and Betty Finn, yeah, uh, they are <laughs> Veronica and Betty from Archie and Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Yeah. So, what do you think the significance of that is? I don't really know, except just known buddies or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because Veronica is kind of the bad girl, right? Veronica and Betty. Veronica is kind of the more the bad girl. And Tom Sawyer, he is a little more mischievous, I guess, than Huck Finn. I was trying to figure out the significance of that. There's got to be something there, though. You know? Yeah, all I could, all I figured was it ended up being just pairings of people, but right. But that's probably too simple. I mean, this guy's obviously thinking pretty deeply on a lot of this stuff. So yeah, maybe there was something to do with their attitudes as well. So when they started thinking about the musical score for the film, uh, Lehman and Waters considered a few different options. Uh, one that they nixed early on was the use of heavy metal, you know, like like the hair metal stuff that was popular at the time in the mid to late 80s, you know. They were going to use that as the soundtrack, which I think would have really dated the film, personally, if they'd have done that. And, of course, both being fans of Kubrick, they considered a classical score, but also nixed that idea, probably due to budget constraints, would be my guess. And eventually they decided to go with a more uh, electronic score, which is a lot more budget-friendly, of course, synthesizer-heavy score, for which they hired David Newman, who was kind of the go-to guy for mid-budget comedies in the 80s. I mean, he also scored Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Throw Mama from the Train, and The War of the Roses, all of which are great movies with great scores. And I love his score for this movie. I was actually listening to it today. I think it's really good. I, I especially love in the opening scenes where he's got this mix of kind of synthesizer electronics and this bluesy harmonica. It's a it's a weird juxtaposition that works very well. I think it's a great score. Now, the film also utilizes a couple of, I guess you could call them needle drops, but not not quite. But you've got the song K Sera Sera twice during the movie, once at the beginning, yeah. uh, and then again over the end credits. So originally they wanted to use the Doris Day original version of that song during the opening credits, but Doris Day would not lend her name or her song to a movie that used profanity. And this music movie uses a lot of profanity. So they commissioned a singer named Sid Straw to record her version of the song, which is the one that we see at the beginning of the film. And then the one at the end, which I think is a great cover, is by Sly and the Family Stone. Super fun. Then there's the song Teenage Suicide, Don't Do It by the fictional band Big Fun, uh, which is hilarious as sort of this parody of, uh, I don't know, those types of songs like We Are the World and all that shit, you know, that was coming out in the 80s. There was a uh, song called uh, Don't Try Suicide by Queen that was out during the time. Or, well, was there I mean, really? earlier, I guess it was 1980. It was called Don't Try Suicide. I think it was even on the single with another one, Bites the Dust. But uh, it seems said, like a, a weird pairing. Yeah. Songs. <laughs> That's a good point. I never thought of that. But uh, anyway, I, I definitely read that this was like supposed to be a uh, a spoof of that. Yeah, I mean, the song itself is more in the style of like Wham! or something like that, I guess. But it was written and performed by Don Dixon, who was a musician from Lancaster, South Carolina, of all places, uh, who had produced R.E.M.'s debut album Murmur and its follow-up Reckoning. So the guy had some legit credits to his name. So after screening at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 1989, Heathers was released to the public in March of that year, and unfortunately, this timing coincided with New World Pictures filing for bankruptcy, so they had, they hardly marketed the film at all. They didn't have the money to do it, and Denise Denovi actually recalls having to pay for an ad in the LA Times using her personal money. She had to spend like $1,800 on it, I think. Yeah, yeah, in that oral history, she said, I mean, in the commentary, she says she offered and they refused it, and then in the oral history, she said, that uh, 
yeah, that she paid like $1,800, which to her was like $18,000 at the time. Yeah. Well, critical reviews were mixed, uh, and audiences generally stayed away, probably because there was very little advertising for it. And the film only grossed $177,000 during its opening weekend and brought in just $1.1 million in the U.S. over the five weeks that it played in theaters. Yeah, Waters said, I, I made more money writing a treatment for Parent Trap 3 for the Disney Channel that never happened. <laughs> uh, another thing that I thought was interesting, Denovi said that they actually, like everybody, started to get poised for a bunch of kids to commit suicide all over the country when the movie came out. <laughs> and uh, she seems more businessy. Like she's she's worried about the business of things, which is her job. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so it makes sense. You know, like even in the commentary, I remember at one point, like Waters is like, you know, the only thing we needed was another cut at some point in this movie. We had too many <laughs> fucks, not enough cuts. And, uh, <laughs> He said, Denise hates the C word, as most women do, but I still really think we could have used a cut at some it's a, point. It's an effective word when used correctly. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> he even says, too, like, he's like, this is the first movie to make fun of date rape and AIDS. I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> the <laughs> first? Like, wow. doc is that documented? <laughs> I don't know. That's what he said, at least. But <laughs> anyway. Well, despite many mainstream critics simply not getting it, I mean, go read. I don't, I'm not, I don't have a quote from it here in my notes, but Roger Ebert is one of those mainstream critics who just didn't seem to understand the film. I think he gave it two and a half stars or something in it. But uh, And despite its middling box office, Heather still won some noteworthy awards. Uh, in 1990, Daniel Waters won the Edgar Award for Best Screenplay. Uh, the Edgar Awards, if you're not familiar with them, they're presented by the Mystery Writers of America to works that excel in the crime genre, although they use you know, the work, the crime genre is a pretty loose definition anything kind of involving crime or police or murders or whatever are eligible so for instance other winners of the screenplay award uh for edgar for that edgar award include pulp fiction in the heat of the night silence of the lambs and chinatown so pretty good company to be in the independent spirit awards which is pretty young at that time also presented michael lehman and denise denovi with the award for best first feature so the movie was being recognized by the film community even if audiences and a lot of critics uh didn't understand it or weren't showing up for it however once it was released on vhs and laserdisc later on in 1989 the movie quickly developed a cult following, one that's only grown in the more than three decades since its release, and it's now often considered one of the best films of the 1980s. So, Gary, you said this was like, this was your first viewing of this, is that right? Or no, you just hadn't watched it in a while, I guess, because you, you said you watched it when Joe Bob did it a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten that I had watched it that recently. As it came on, like I, I was like, have I seen this? I don't remember. And then the very first like the opening with like the polo and stuff. I was like, oh yeah, I have seen this. Yeah. I remembered it. I mean, watching this movie now, what we're 35 years since it's released, right? Does that sound right? 35 years almost. Yeah. I feel like probably. you watch it now and you're, you're like, there's no way this movie could get made today. Right. I mean, themes about gun violence, mental health, teen suicide, bullying, eating disorders, all in a comedy, by the way, um, jokes about, like you said, date rape and AIDS, like people would be in an uproar, despite the fact that it's clearly a satire. Although I think now, like in, in I'm trying to say this without stepping on too many people's toes, <laughs> but I feel like a lot of people now don't make concessions for satire or simply don't seem to recognize it a lot of the time. So I feel like if this movie came out today, people would be all over Twitter just bitching about it, not realizing that it's, obviously a satire 
Yeah, I mean, you're going to run into that. Like, uh, whenever we do some stuff, we'll talk about somebody needs a nap. But, like, if you look at reviews, a lot of times people have a lot of trouble with uh, some of the, the language they use as far as... Uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, well, like, when they drop the F-bomb, and I don't mean fuck, and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, the... But the, the people who drop the, that language, like the, you know, Ram and Kurt are not, they're, they're, they're bad dudes. Like you're not supposed yeah, to, yeah. to sympathize with them. So like the, and the only other people that use that are the police who are also portrayed as just like absolute morons. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is that, I mean, it's clearly like, it's not like glorifying that language or anything not at all. or like just the belittling of other people and that sort of thing. I don't think a lot of people get that now. I, I will say, I mean, the second Christian Slater pulls out a gun in the cafeteria, yeah. I'm like, holy shit, they can't yeah. do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. You can't. It, and even though he was just shooting blanks, like he just gets suspended, I think, maybe for a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. <I was> like, <laughs> like, that dude would be done. Yeah, he'd be in jail. Uh, but I do think the themes in Heather's are as relevant today as they were in 1989. I mean, probably even more so, honestly, which I think is a large part of why it's stood the test of time, even I think more so than the John Hughes movies that we've already mentioned, because I don't think, even though it was made around the same time, I think this has aged better than those movies, which feel very much more a product of their time. Whereas this one feels relevant. Some, some of the ways that it feels relevant are not great. Cause it means we haven't grown as much as we probably should have in the last 35 years, but it does make the movie feel much more modern than other movies that might've come out in the late 1980s. It definitely doesn't seem like it. And, um, you know, there's movies like this one and, uh, and we mentioned say anything before, uh, mm -hmm. those movies, I feel like they always, especially with say anything they get lumped into these like these john hughes movies or something right. like they're gonna be that kind of thing and these movies are anti that like purposely it's not anti, anti yeah, yeah yeah they're definitely the opposite of that and so yeah. i feel like if you watch this movie or if you go into say anything like that those kind of uh, expecting 16 candles then you're going to be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. I mean, this is, it's not quite a parody of those movies. It's not a, this is not a parody, you know, but it is definitely taking the piss out of some of those movies for sure. I mean, it, there are things that it does that are directly speaking to some of the things that those John Hughes movies did. I, I, I one thing that I like to think of is uh, when you talk about the character of uh, Veronica, her, tra her trajectory throughout the film she almost gets like an, an whatever the opposite of a makeover would be like, you know, what is it? The breakfast club where Ali Sheedy goes from being like the goth girl weirdo to like a more quote unquote normal preppy kid, which is the worst right. makeover in history. Cause she's definitely hotter in the first part of the movie. <laughs> right. But, right. Uh, but the movie is trying to tell you that she's better now because she has conformed to being normal. Whereas Winona Ryder is kind of doing the opposite of that in this movie. She starts off with the popular crowd. And at the end of the movie, she's covered in soot. She's smoking a cigarette. She's got almost this big Susie Sue, like blown up haircut, you know, like she is, she is what, what John Hughes movies would see as uh, a digression, almost an anti makeover. She's going in the other direction, you know, and this movie is saying, Hey, it's okay to not conform. Uh, that's yeah, kind of, a, I mean, that's kind of part of its message. They definitely. Uh, I can't remember who said it was. The, it was Sanovi or it was Waters. It was probably Waters, but uh, 
I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but they talk about like at the time, like just the John Hughes specifically movies that they remember showing like high school life and that sort of thing. And they're like, but then there's this other hallway that's darker and more dimly yeah. lit over there that they're not ever focused on and they're not ever thinking about. Yeah. I wanna, we wanted to come over to that one and see what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, high school movies, you know, they were, I, I, the 80s were probably like the, uh, the the when when high school movies were really blowing up as a genre i would say but high school movies have been popular i mean for, for, for forever i mean since the 50s honestly but there's a reason that the high school movie is of is such a popular subgenre you know uh everyone we've relates- all experienced that trauma exactly <laughs> everyone relates to it uh like everyone almost everyone that you know has spent four of the most formative years of their life in this building where social orders are established. And for a lot of people, I would say for most people, high school sucked. You know, like high school was not a cool time for most people. Uh, For a lot of people, either you were being picked on by somebody at some point or, or you were the bully. I guess, you know, like uh, there are people who exist in that in between for sure. But I'd say the majority of people are on one end of that one end of that spectrum or the other. I mean, like me and you didn't meet until well after high school. I think we were in our early 20s or so when we met. Right. Early to mid 20s. Right. Uh, So what was your high school experience like? You went to high school in Georgia. Is that right? Yeah, I did. In Georgia. Were you like South Georgia? Were South Georgia. So almost Florida. Uh, so Florida. in the swamps, the swamps of yep. South Georgia. That's where I was. So, our, our our mascot was the gator. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course it was. So <laughs> that's all you have. That's everyone's mascot is the gator in South Georgia or, or Northern Florida. Right. <laughs> uh, when you were in high school, like what did you fall into a certain social caste? You know, were you the popular kids or the dorky kids? I I, I imagine you were a. Were you in the band? Were you a band kid? I know you were a musician. I was in chorus. You were in uh, chorus. Okay. But I, I, and my buddy was trying to get me to join the band and play the xylophone. And I just wasn't dedicated enough to do it. You were not dedicated to the xylophone? I was not. I was not. (laughs) Uh, So I was going to say, I didn't fit into any certain group, but I was probably the dorks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, You know, I was thinking about this because of this movie. I remember, this is just a random little factoid about that too. Uh, When I first got into high school, as I was coming up, I was in middle school. There were two high schools in my town. And one was uh, where I grew up. It was Waycross High School. And there's Ware County High School. What was the Ware County was the Gators. That was the county high school. And there was the city, Waycross, which was the Bulldogs. Uh, the, that would seem like that would be the easy distinction. And there's the Florida-Georgia rivalry in college sure. football and all that stuff. What the real distinction was that nobody will talk about uh, that I can tell you firmly here was that Waycross, the city high school, was the black people. Uh-huh. And the county was not. It was the the, the country, like the, yeah. And that that is one hundred percent how it was at first. But but they had just put them together for some reason. They had made the decision that they would just they merged them, them all together. And I and and it is sure it could have been business reasons. But I think I legitimately was in the deep south, like right on the cusp of some 
racist shit that everybody was like, wait a wait, minute. No wait, were they, they, started, they started segregating in 1996 <laughs> in Waycross, Georgia? You, I am not kidding. I remember <laughs> that it was Christ. like, that's what you thought of. And I'm late to the game not, there. Not to say, okay, so to be fair, it wasn't like I didn't go to school with black people or something right, like I, that. There the, were the, black the, people and white people in both. But it well, was it may have been something where, way. like, the lines, the way that the the high school lines were drawn, was along like like racial lines as far as where people lived in your town. Which honestly, who knows? In deep in deep South Georgia, may have been done on purpose. They may have been drawn that way on purpose. You know, who knows? Yeah, yeah. And so and, and I only bring that up to say like I my memories of high school were like uh, well, I fucking hated it. I hated high school. Every yeah. second of it. And yeah. uh and just and I remember like there were the groups like the jocks and then the, like the the preppy girls and the you know, there are all the different things you always remember. And but I even remember there being that there was like this like you would have like real racism like in, yeah. in my high school. And, uh, and I, and I've always fucking hated that. Cause I got yeah. along like that. Some of my friends there were, I know it sounds like the cliche thing, but a lot of my friends there were black. And then you would be in another class later and hear somebody dropping the in bomb, like yeah. all nonchalant, you know? And it's just, uh, it's weird, man. But no, I, I think you're a psychopath. If you loved high school, at least yeah. based on my experience. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I was not like picked on necessarily in high school. I had a weird high school experience because I came into a high school not really knowing anybody. I had gone to private school um, all the way up through eighth grade, um, various private schools. Uh, in various in various states, and including a year of homeschooling. So, like, by the time I came to high school, I had never been to public school. Um, so I came into, uh, into a school where the only person that I knew was my cousin who was all, who was also going to public school for the first time we were in the same grade. Uh, but I didn't know anybody. So I didn't, you know, I came in as like the new kid didn't. And so I, I just made friends with who I made friends with. And I, like I said, I, I kind of, I got along with most of the other social, you know, casts for lack of a better term uh without being friends with them like i wasn't friends with the popular kids necessarily but i could get along with them um i was more i was probably friends with more of the dorks uh but i was more in the like i was one of the the weird like new metal you know skater kids Justin <laughs> has had more different looks than anybody i've ever known in my life like you yeah just in any two-year period of his life and he looks like a totally different person yeah i'm like i was i'm like madonna I just reinvent myself every now and then <laughs> um <laughs> no and, and and i will say just to, to go off what you're saying of i i can say like i i i was not a bullied like uh, like so traumatically like i was not, yeah like, yeah i mean around or anything right like there that, were there, you know? there were definitely people who probably said shitty things to me or whatever or treated me shitty but i wasn't like a nerd getting stuffed in a locker or getting a wedgie. You know, I was kind of right. somewhere in between. I was definitely like an outsider because I was one of the like weird art. I was one of the art class kids is what it was. Um, yeah. you know, so, and so I, I took all the art classes. So, but the thing is taking a lot of art classes, you know, there were popular kids who would take art classes. There were dirt nerds who would take art classes and things like that. So I, I, 
because of that, I mingled with a lot of different people, but I was also friends with a lot of band dorks. Like my best friends were in the band, you know, they, they were in the marching band. So I, I definitely hung, I dated a, a girl who was in the color guard. And you know, like, uh, so I, I, I definitely hung out with people from all various aspects, but my generally, I mean, there are, obviously there are, I have good memories from high school. Uh, although I don't really keep in touch with hardly anyone that I went to high school with, except for my wife, who I went to high school with. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we keep, you know, I still talk to her, but, uh, um, I'm friends with, with people I went to high school with, uh, through Facebook. That's, a, yeah. that's about what I got. I don't, right. I don't care to remember anything about. High I, yeah. School, it's not, it's not a time clear. in my life. You know, it's, it's this, it's weird. Cause high school is this time in your life where it, it does help shape who you are as a person, but it also is not a very pleasant time for most people. <laughs> you know, it's a weird juxtaposition. It's like a time that where you probably are, are, your brain is developing more than any other time in your life. And your emotions are probably developing quick, more quickly than any other time in your life. And yet it is a time that most people would not want to revisit whatsoever. Yeah. I always remembered like going into graduation, you know, like the last year, like people being like, Oh, it, it, take it all in. This is, you know, you'll always remember this and want to come back and wish you had enjoyed it more. And I'm like, still now at my advanced age, I'm like, I do no, no, that it's is the, not out of all periods yeah. of my life. I can if, revisit. I mean, this yeah, is not if the best the years of your life, if the best years of your life were in high school and you, you peaked in high school, then I am sorry. <laughs> I am sorry that your life has gone in that direction because that sucks. I will give it this that like, I mean, it does at the time feel that way. Like it feels yeah. like this is the most important time of your life and everything well, yeah. that happens here affects everything else about the rest of mm -hmm. your life. Well, that's what you're not true. But that's, that's what you're yeah. that's what you're led to believe, which is not true. It's not true at all. I mean, high high school is this sort of universal thing, uh, not only because it's one of the few things in life that everyone has in common, but because there's this hierarchy of in high school that tends to reflect a lot of the hierarchy of the real world. Because uh, high school is where this sort of social order is established, or at least this is where people try to start mimicking the social order of adulthood because they, they see their parents, there's a social order in their lives. So it's almost like teenagers are trying to recreate that themselves in school. And there has to be like a boss, you know, there has to be a leader, which is kind of uh, yeah. where, where, you know, people like Heather Chandler fall in, you know, you, you've basically in high school, just like in real life, you've got the haves and the have nots and you've got your authority figures, which in high school terms is, your popular kids, your dorks, and the teachers. I mean, obviously there are people that fall in between, but most people could probably fit into those two categories, just like in real life. I have, I have not, or you're an authority figure who could fall into either one of those categories. But they that's what they talk about in this movie. Like JD, actually, he has a line that says, the school was society. That's what he says in his big like speech at the end, you know? And Veronica even compares her group of friends to her coworkers when she's talking to JD outside of the, the snappy shack, you know? Uh, so the movie's definitely trying to say something about how high school and is sort of a mirror image of adult society. But when you're in high school, you kind of see it as like, like you said, everyone says that this is 
the the beginning of the rest of your life almost is kind of what they make it feel like because in high school everything seems so goddamn important like things that we now as people in our 40s could give two shits about feel like they're life and death when you're in high school but then when you get older and you have the perspective of adulthood and you look back you realize that high school is mostly just a bunch of bullshit <laughs> like it really is i mean obviously there are things that you learn in high school that are important there are skills that you learn in high school that are important but all that other stuff all that social stuff in high school is all bullshit and does not matter once you're out of that yeah i mean the thing is is like this is why i'm i'm glad that some of the pe- people like Denovi maybe and and even maybe Lehman like that they rained uh waters in a little bit on this yeah. movie um because like I appreciate what he was going for like some of it like you know as adults we can look back on it and be like you know like oh that would have been so dark and funny if it had ended this certain way but well like if I if I really put myself back there and how important and big I thought everything was in high school, uh, and, and you and I have had these discussions plenty of times. Sometimes heated, like on like I mean, which shows like thirteen reasons why I came out, and uh, we're talking about suicide uh, portrayed in things that like over time, like I've I used to not think it was that big of a deal, but especially in something like this, I feel like there can't be if you're appealing to high schoolers. Mm-hmm. And this movie is about high school. You cannot have the ultimate victory be you're killing yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and you just can't do that. That can't be the win. That can't be movie. the message that the movie rolls credits on. Yeah, exactly. So I'm super glad that, that is not the way this movie is. Although on some part of me, there's like a, that'd be funny. But like if you were especially at this time appealing to high schoolers like who think this is their real life uh that that that's just that's not a great message instead right. it's better that veronica walks into this thing or like a- exits this thing as like you know what you fucking take yourself out i'm gonna trudge through it and i'm gonna dictate the terms from here and yeah. you know that's that's the outlook that's what yeah. you're supposed to go for yeah and i think that's a that's a much better way for this story to end, you know, the thing is that the way that this is written, like waters has a lot of, he has a lot of great ideas. I think I, I, I am glad that he was reined in a little bit on some of the stuff you're talking about. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, I think that makes the movie much better, but you know, the idea that it's all a bunch of bullshit is a, like, that's addressed in the film where you know, JD starts underlining passages from Moby Dick and uh, you know he they underword the, they underline the word Eskimo, and then Veronica has this dream where the uh, Father Ripper, I think was his name, right? The the pastor, yeah. the priest, starts talking about how the word Eskimo is kind of the key to Heather's inner life or whatever. And uh, even though they underlined it as a joke, and that's just like society will always try to find deeper meaning where there is none. Like they like that's what happens to all of these characters. Like they're all they're all almost lionized once they're dead, you know? Uh, And in real life, that that's just not, that's just not how things were, you know? And it's not that the movie is on JD's side, you know, even though he is right about certain aspects of like thinking this is all bullshit and the hierarchy and the, the, uh, of high school is all bullshit because it is, 
but he takes it a, a, a little too far. <laughs> the movie is not on JD's side. Uh, he is uh, he is the film's villain, essentially. I mean, he is the villain of the film. There are other people who are assholes, but he's the villain, right? Uh, everyone in this movie is kind of a stereotype. You know, uh, you've got the, the dumb jocks, the popular girls, the stoners, the dorks, the geeks, whatever. JD, I think, in high school movie terms, is the bad boy stereotype, like... Uh, Judd Nelson and Breakfast Club, I guess, would be a good, yeah, uh, a good other, another example. But he's just dialed up to eleven. You know, he's he's a nihilist whose solution is to kill everyone. Or I wouldn't, I don't even know that he starts off as a nihilist. He starts off as a cynic, but his solution is to kill everyone and blow up the school. And for what? You know, um, he's almost like the Joker in the Dark Knight. Like he he's an agent of chaos. He even has this big speech about chaos. Right, he just wants to watch the world burn. That's kind of who his character is. He is, like Veronica says, he's a psychopath. Like that—that's really where where his character comes from, from a point of psychopathy. Yeah, uh, I think I, I forget where I've heard this before, but like, it's not—it's not that he's wrong. Uh, there, there. Gosh, I wish I could remember where I heard it, but they—they they say like, uh, your diagnosis is correct, but your prognosis is wrong. Oh yeah, that's um, good. And uh, it's it's that he's he's not he's not incorrect that a lot of society is this way and this is how it's going to be. But yeah. this is his solution is is not the way it has to be. Yeah, and, not necessarily yeah. the best way to go. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, so is... so like even at the end with Veronica and and, and uh, uh, Martha. Martha, dump truck. All I could think was dump truck, and I just felt dirtier just saying dump truck. <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, you, you get the... Uh, and they're not fixing everything, but she is like, you know, I'm not going to the prom. Let's hang out and watch some movies or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and that's okay. And they'll be happy. And they you can... You can still find things that make you happy and and work your way through it. You can watch movies with your old pals at Cinema Shock. That's what you can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Martha seems to be the only character who sees through like the 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 bullshit that is high school. You know, who sees through all this other all these other things that people get stuck in, like being in their their little social circle. Because she just kind of like she gets bullied and. She just, but she does. She doesn't bother anybody. She just sits. She sits by herself at lunch. She she leaves everyone alone, and she's bullied simply, I guess, because she's fat. You know, it's it's a, uh, it's shitty. But you know, th th this is a, it is a cynical movie. I would say. I mean, it is a dark, dark movie as far as its subject matter. I think it's hilarious, though. Uh, I think it's an incredibly funny movie because of mostly because of the dialogue. I think, I think Waters' dialogue in this is so so good, so clever, but. You know, when you when you compare it to the, it, you can't watch, you can't talk about this movie without comparing it to those John Hughes movies, which we have a hundred times already on this episode. But I think that this is obviously much more cynical than those movies. But it's also, I think, filled with characters who are much more complex than those characters. While every character in this is kind of a stereotype, uh, there are there are some nuances to even you know even the heathers themselves who are initially presented as as straight up villains they're no they're not like two dimensional bullies you know there's one moment in in particular with heather chandler kind of early on in the film where they go to that college party and she's kind of pressured into giving a dude a blowjob at that party and then you see her a few minutes later rinsing her mouth out with water and she kind of spits the water out at her own reflection 
like she's disgusted with herself. So she's not just this like two dimensional mean girl character. Like there is some, com some complexity there up until that moment. You've only seen her as a, as a bully, but that brief moment does kind of recontextualize what we know about her so far. One writer I read uh, talking about that scene in particular um, writer named Kathy Brennan, who was writing about this movie on a website called one room with a view. Uh, she had a great quote talking about this and where, where she says, quote, it suggests that her impenetrable cruelty at school is just a suit of armor that she wears to deal with the demands of being a young woman in a misogynistic world, uh, which does create a, a view of this character is a lot more complex than what you think it's going to be, because that's not what you normally get out of these bully type characters. Uh, but it's not just her. I mean, Heather Duke, uh, Shannon Doherty's character, you know, she starts off being she's I guess you could call her second in command of the Heathers, but she's degraded pretty early on by having to like bend over so Veronica can ride on her back. You know, uh, she yeah. is being bullied, too, in her own way. And then you get even more vulnerability from Heather McNamara when we hear her phone call to the the radio show Hot Probs. Uh, and then you see right. her attempted suicide later in the film. Like these characters are given complexity, uh, which you don't get from these films or films like this very often, I don't think. And I think JD is probably the, the most complex, you know, because uh, he's presented as this cool anti-authority, rebellious teen type uh, like you normally see in these types of movies. But as the movie goes on, you find that his teen angst bullshit is fueled by feeling like, like his mother didn't love him. I mean, that's that's what he says at the end, you know? Uh, and that's why I think his cynicism turns into nihilism by the end of the movie. Well, I like that. But like you said, I mean, this does, for all of its cynicism, this movie does end up end on a somewhat hopeful note. You know, Veronica has realized that this whole high school hierarchy is meaningless like she comes to the, she finally comes to the conclusion that this is all really stupid and that maybe changes necessary and changes on the horizon I, and i love that moment at the end where she yanks that red scrunchie off of heather duke's head which is kind of like the movie symbol for almost like a crown like the school queen that that red scrunchie and she yeah. says there's a new sheriff in town that's like her saying hey things don't have to stay this way Things can change, and now we're on the road to that that changing. So it does end in a way where it's like, hey, things don't always have to suck. <laughs> uh, that's that's the part I like about it, because it seems like if they'd have gone with the uh, Veronica blowing herself up at the end, like that's yeah, just like, you wouldn't get hey, that. it's not going to get any better than this. Right, <laughs> it, might as well give up. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And it's like, so that's, I think that's not a message you want to send. It's not a message you want to send. And also, I don't think that the movie earns that. I think the movie earns the ending that it actually gets. I think Veronica's arc as a character more neatly fits into the ending that we finally got rather than the original ending that they wrote, if that makes sense. Well, I think it'd just be really nihilistic if she she is just like, oh, well, JD is right, actually. like, uh, Right. I've been fighting it, but the dude's got a point. Yeah, that'd be just her giving up, you know? Yeah. So after the movie became a hit on video, Lehman and Waters began developing Heathers as a TV show, actually, because they're finally like, hey, this thing's got some legs, it turns out. Even though people didn't see it in the theater, people are watching it, people are enjoying it. So they they kind of uh, started developing it as a TV show, and they pitched it to the newly launched Fox Network, who was looking for some content to fill out their, their launch slate. 
And Peter Shernan, who we've actually talked about on the show a good bit before, because I, I think he worked on um, Titanic. I think he was like one of the big Fox guys at Titanic at that time, or uh, when Titanic was being worked on. But at the time, he was the COO of Fox Network, and he loved their treatment for a Heather's TV show. Uh, but he had two different high school movie or high school set TV dramas that were kind of being pitched to him. So he has like both of these scripts on his desk, and he has to pick between the two. And of course, he ends up uh, passing on the Heather's TV show in favor of that other show, which was called Beverly Hills High. And of course, by the time it got released, uh, the title had changed to Beverly Hills 90210, which starred, of course, Shannon Doherty. Well, apparently, Tori Spelling was a fan of Heather's. And so she had seen Shannon in this movie, and it was her that recommended to Aaron Spelling that uh, you should get this Shannon Doherty chick uh, to be in your new show. And uh, probably regrets that, but that that is what she did. <laughs> I don't know if you regretted it. I mean, her character was one of the more memorable characters. What, what was is that Donna? Was she Donna? I no, Donna was uh, not her. It was yeah, uh, she. One of the other. Wait, Shannon Doherty is Brenda because in Mallrats, it's Ethan Suplee who's the sailboat guy. Yeah, yeah. And she's like after all of his freakouts, he's like, "Is that a sailboat?" And then he turns to her, and is like, "Brenda." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in Mallrats, that's a really funny movie. Mallrats is a funny movie. Thank you, Gary. It is a funny movie. It's my it's least... still funny even to this day to me. Mm. But I, I've, I've never for... been I've never been a huge fan of Mallrats. Oh, well, that's so weird. I, I know mean, it's, it's definitely a movie that made me cry laughing the first time I watched it. Now, I mean, I'm I'd say never. I, I'm sure I was a fan when I was like, you know, when I saw it and went on its original release, but. Uh, it hasn't aged well for me. And that's a that's a discussion for another day. We're still talking about Heather's, or but we're towards the end of the Heather story, but we're not quite there yet. So there is a little bit more to the life of this this film. So because it had become such a cult film over the years, they have for a long time there have been talks about a possible Heather sequel. Uh, in 2009, talking to Entertainment Weekly, Winona Ryder claimed that Heather's two was quote in the works with Slater coming back as a kind of Obi-Wan character. So I guess the, his ghost would show up like a force ghost. I don't know. Uh, Lehman de has denied that a sequel was, was ever you know, actively in development, although Waters did toy with the idea of a sequel where Veronica becomes a page for a senator who's named Heather. She was kind of modeled after 90s Hillary Clinton, I think. Uh, and she was going to be played by Meryl Streep. This is just him just pitching an idea, you know. Meryl Streep wasn't signed on or anything, but at the end, uh, Veronica has to assassinate the president and gets away with it. And it's a good thing, he says. That would be the the thing about it. it yeah, yeah, a good it's, thing it's that good. She could... It's yeah, and and why not a writer? I guess pitched this to Meryl Streep when they were working on a movie, and Meryl Streep was just like, "Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it." But uh, writer uh, thinks she was just kind of patronizing her a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, in that in that oral history, it's like uh, he's like, yeah, I did say all this, and then like, writers like, first of all, I don't get what their problem is. Uh, she's like, I don't know why you wouldn't want to make a sequel to this, yeah. but uh, yeah, she 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 mentioned that she came up with the idea about like uh, uh, the business suit guys and the Washington politicians and stuff like that, but that like. Christian Slater would come in as the Obi-Wan figure. She's like, everybody just like brushes her off. And it's like, oh, that's cute. And she's like, this is a genius idea. Come on, why are we not doing this? But, uh, uh, <laughs> and Water says like, yeah, I've said the same thing about my idea for it that I've said to White Olda. No more elaboration. 
but then like a year later, uh, she comes up to me. It's like, I talked to Meryl. She's in. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like, there's not a script for this. But Ryder says that uh, to, to her credit, she says that, yeah, we, we were working on this movie, like the House of Spirits, House of the Spirits. And uh, I'm pitching this whole thing in the makeup chair one day. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds really great. <laughs> he's like, so he's like, also, like, what are you going to tell a 19 year old kid who's just trying to, like, ramble on about this movie idea that she has? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 2010, Heathers was adapted into a stage musical directed by a guy named Andy Frickman, who had also been responsible for the musical version of Reefer Madness just a few years earlier. And just like the film, Heather's The Musical became a cult sensation. After premiering in Los Angeles, it moved to Off-Broadway, where it played at the New World stage, which was not, not in any way affiliated with New World Pictures, just a weird coincidence. But the New World stage had previously hosted other cult musicals like Evil Dead the Musical and The Toxic Avenger. Uh, after a successful off-Broadway run, the production premiered in London, where it played off West End before moving to the West End. Uh, it's also played all over the world. I think it's played in Australia. And, you know, it's never played, like, on Broadway proper, though, uh, yet. But who knows? In 2018, a Heather's TV show finally happened. Uh, originally developed for uh, TV Land, you know, the TV Land channel that, like, Nick at Night became TV Land, right? Uh, they play old yeah. shows. <laughs> <laughs> or they used to. I don't know if TV Land still exists. Does it still exist? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't have cable. Uh, but the show was originally uh, developed for TV Land, and then it was moved as part of the launch slate of shows for the new Paramount Network, with a premiere scheduled for March of 2018. Uh, however, in the wake of the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, in February of that year, and considering the subject matter of the show, the premiere was delayed t- until uh, until July. But then in late May of 2018 another high school shooting occurred this time at santa fe high school in texas and paramount made the decision to just drop the show entirely but then later on that year october 4th uh they announced that the series would premiere on october 25th on the paramount network over the course of five nights now i i i'm guessing here but i'm guessing hey they're thinking we already paid for this show we might as well just dump it on the net on the network uh, You'd think and, that, but it seems like all these networks, I don't get it, but they seem to also pay for stuff that they're like, never see this again. Well, they're doing that now, but that's a more recent phenomenon because they've found, I think, tax loopholes that allow them to get a tax break by doing that. Like that Batgirl TV or movie, wasn't it? The yeah, Batgirl that's what I'm movie. thinking of. And yeah. like, uh, there was something recently I remember seeing, but it's just like. No, we're just never going to show this. Yeah, they're getting tax write-offs. Maybe maybe Paramount's uh, accountants hadn't figured that loophole out yet or something at this time. But they they ended up uh, announcing a premiere on October 25th. So they only announced it like three weeks before the show. So it it can't be something they put a ton of thought or care into. Uh, And that version of the show was heavily edited for content. And two of the first season's uh, episodes were actually pulled from their schedule after... um, well, you guessed it. Another mass shooting. Welcome to America. Uh, this time it was at the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting uh, on October 27th of that year. So they ended up pulling the last couple episodes. Uh, so it never uh, aired in an unedited form in the U.S. at all. Uh, now you can go buy this season on like Amazon Prime or any of those places where you can buy like full seasons of TV shows. But I don't know if it's the edited or unedited version of it. And I, I didn't want to spend the $15 to find out. Uh, the original unedited show was released. It was released in HBO Europe, uh, where it played in all kinds of European countries, and then it was available on Stars in the UK. So it 
it does exist. It just wasn't officially aired in the U.S. in that form. I forgot that it even happened until I was like, oh, I went to go stream Heather's. And yeah, you found search it. Search for it, and it popped up. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot they did this thing. About yeah, it's, it, it's right? weird that they, you know, they, they decided to kind of shelve it because it was about dark, you know, dark content involving a high school, suicide and shootings and things like that. But if it was anything like the movie... I imagine it would be satirizing those things. And Lehman and Waters, I believe, were involved in it. Uh, so I have to imagine it, it would kind of be in the same vein as the movie, which, you know, I understand being sensitive to real-life tragedy, obviously, but the the show as a satire would probably have things to say. And, and, my, and, and Daniel Waters has actually gone on to say that. Like, he's like, it's important that art reflect on real life issues and that's what we were doing with the show but i guess paramount thought it was just hitting a little too close to home and didn't want to chance the backlash for it uh which is why they made the decision that they made but that's pretty much the story of heathers uh but you know since we're not doing this as part of a long form series i did want to kind of do a little sidebar of note about the people who made the film you know what have they done since Heather's and I'm not talking about Winona Ryder or Christian Slater or Shannon Doherty. Like we know what they've done after Heather's. We don't, I don't need to give you a, a rundown of Winona Ryder's career post Heather's. I think yeah, everyone's pretty well aware of that, but what about the other behind the scenes folks like Michael Lehman, like the director, you know, well, Michael Lehman has gone on to have a pretty successful career as a director. Uh, he works mostly in television these days, and he works a lot in television these days. Most recently on a couple of episodes of the wrestling drama Hills. Have you seen that, Hills? Uh, it's got the guy from Arrow in it, right? Yeah, it's got some of the guys we work with, too, over at the NWA, but I've honest to God, I've never seen it. Don't I haven't seen it either. I won't tell any of your friends. <laughs> <laughs> There's always you can always watch it later, but yeah, he he's directed a couple episodes of that. He also did the Netflix series, uh, The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window with Kristen Bell, uh, which I did I watch that. and was very fun. It was a, a fun little kind of parody of those, you know, those paperback, like the girl on the train and things like that. Uh, but he directed all eight episodes of that one, so that's been the most recent, like, major thing that he's done. But in the years immediately after Heather's, he directed a few movies, he did uh, Hudson Hawk which uh, actually reteamed him with Waters. Uh, Daniel Waters wrote the screenplay for that. Uh, Airheads, which is one of my, was one of my favorite movies of that era. I have not seen it in many years, but I loved Airheads when I was a teenager. Uh, the Truth About Cats and Dogs uh, and 40 Days and 40 Nights. So he's not doing like masterpieces, but he's doing kind of like pleasant little movies. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see it here, but he actually too, I remember reading that he was... Uh... You know, you mentioned Larry, Ka, Ka, uh, Larry, what was his name? Kara Zip. You Karazuski? mentioned Larry Karazuski. Larry K. Larry K. You mentioned <laughs> Larry K earlier on. Uh, writing Ed Wood. Uh, Lehman was supposed to direct Ed Wood, and then something happened like with Airheads that he ended up doing Airheads instead. But like wow. he was, when he pulled out of that, that's when Tim Burton came on to Ed Wood. Interesting. Uh, just for another connection. Yeah. Well, and, and as for Waters, you know, talking about other connections, when we get into his stuff, you know, Waters, after Heather's, he wrote a movie called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, uh, which is not good. It's got Andrew Dice Clay in it. Have you ever seen that? 
No, but I looked it up because of this, and I was like, "What is this movie? I need to yeah, see." Yeah, Rennie it. Harlan and Andrew Dice Clay. It's uh, bad. <laughs> it's got a lot of people in it, though. Yeah, but it was. I don't think it was really Waters' fault that it was bad. I think that it was. Uh, it had some development issues, and you know, I, I remember reading one quote from Waters where he talked to. He had gone to see Andrew Dice Clay's stand up and thought he was. He's like he's doing this really brilliant parody of the the super macho guy, and it's like. Well, he was not doing a parody. That's just literally who Andrew Dice is. <laughs> like that's that's his personality. He's not pretending to be this, uh, you know, macho, masochistic, or misogynistic rather, uh, homophobic asshole. That's just kind of who he. At least that's who he was at the time. That's just who Andrew Dice Clay was. Uh, but I thought that was a pretty funny quote. But he also, of course, wrote Hudson Hawk, like we mentioned. But then. He wrote the screenplay for Batman Returns, another Tim Burton connection. Uh, and then a year later, he wrote Demolition Man, which is another movie that I fucking love. I love Demolition Man. And I think it's a, also a great satire, Demolition Man is. It kind of plays on the tropes of like action movies in much of the same way that Heather's plays with the tropes of the high school movie. And now, I, I haven't dug deep enough to find out, uh, but uh, this might be a story that has to wait till we do a Tim Burton series, but I, I'd be willing to bet that he got the gig working on Batman Returns through his old friend Denise Denovi, uh, which was you know Heather's producer. Because after Heather's Denovi, uh, she actually became the head of Tim Burton's production company, and so she produced uh, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Ed Wood. Like she produced a whole ton of Tim Burton movies. She did James and the Giant Peach, which Burton didn't direct but also produced, or he didn't. Uh, it's directed by Henry Selleck, who did Nightmare Before Christmas. So she's like heavily involved in Tim Burton's films from from there on out, basically. So it's it's so weird. Like I, as I was watching this movie, or as I was researching it, to find out how many just really random Tim Burton connections there are in it. Yeah, they, it is. It is weird how much in Tim Burton. Yeah, it, it's weird. Like how much it is orbit this movie is. Yeah, yeah. For him to have strange. no connection to it, none at all. Yeah. Just the six degrees of Tim Burton on this on this movie. Uh, but that's it. That's all I've got for Heathers for today, unless you have anything else to add, Gary. I don't think so. I think that's it. Uh, that's Heathers. That's Heathers. So you may have been wondering why we skipped a couple of uh, normal segments on this episode, the Somebody Needs a Nap and the Further Viewing. Of course, Todd's Trekking thing is not here because Todd's not here, but we will be releasing those segments. We're just trying something a little bit differently while we're doing this sort of interim roulette fun thing that we're doing for the holidays. So we're playing around with the format a little bit. So we will be releasing those. Just keep an eye on your feed. Uh, but before we wrap things up, Gary, we need to choose the next roulette episode that we're doing. Uh, you want spin me to spin the, the wheel, wheel this time? Spin I think you did it last wheel. time. Spin All right, here we go. The wheel. All right, we're going back to horror, Gary. Uh, this happens a lot. We, I got, I think there's just a lot of horror movies on my roulette list. It's <laughs> probably what it is. But we are going with Paul W. S. Anderson's Event Horizon. Only good movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> it's not. It's not wrong. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Event Horizon. That should be a pretty fun story too. I think because I think there was some behind the scenes strife on it with alternate cuts and lost footage and things like that. So we'll uh, we'll see what we can find out with our research for that episode. But 
join us for a little bit of cosmic horror with Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne and Event Horizon. We'll we'll be discussing that in full on our next episode. After that, big fan of cosmic horror. Big fan yeah. of uh, you know, if if you like the the. I don't know. We we got requested to do like some devilish stuff with like exorcist stuff uh, recently. Well, this this gets into some hellish aspects. Yeah, so yeah. This is uh, this will be fun. It'll be fun. It's a, a movie that I remember enjoying a lot. I have not seen it in a few years, so I'm excited to revisit it. Actually, um, that's all I got for this one, though, Gary. You want to tell our uh, listeners where you can be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horde on all social medias. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at cinemashock.net or follow us at cinema underscore shock. Uh, please, if you like this episode or if you like any of our episodes, share them with your friends any way you know how. Rate, review, all that bullshit that helps us get in front of more people. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other.